What's up? Welcome to the Fit Trials Podcast. I'm Tori. I'm an online fitness coach possessed by cultivating fitness transformations. I take the exhausted, tried everything individual and breed them into a healthy lifestyle machine. With guest appearances from other entrepreneurs in all industries, we tackle the trials and tribulations of fitness and business together and have a little fun in between. So if you're ready to level up, let's dive in. Welcome to part two of Fitness Myths with my good friend, Caleb Duckweiler. Um, And oh, you know what I forgot to do is ask you where the good people can find you on social after part one. Uh, So on Instagram, I am uh, the four, that's T-H-E-F-O-U-R, underscore star, underscore ball. Um, Very obscure name. It is a total nerd uh, name those of you Dragon Ball fans out there that are listening will will catch Get that one. Vape. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> if you don't if you don't catch it, you're not a Dragon Ball fan. But <laughs> it's yeah, total anime nerd thing. So that's my Instagram handle, and primarily that's uh, tends to be what I use um, on Facebook. It's just my name. Perfect. Cool. Okay. We are moving on to our exercise version. We touched a little bit on it in part one, but I think we can spend more time really delving into it. So let's, let's start with, um, you should spend a lot of time stretching before exercising. Right. So this one, um, I think is kind of newer in terms of like the, uh, like the, the information that's out there because for years we were always told like, well, you got to stretch before and after you exercise to prevent injury. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, if you think back to like high school PE, right. You always, they would stand you in a group and they'd have you go through this series of stretches and then you go do whatever activity you were going to do. Um, but as it turns out, there are different types of exercises or sorry, different types of stretches that are more effective at certain times than others. Right. And so when we talk about before exercise, um, we're going to compare two types of stretching, one being static and one being dynamic. Static literally meaning standing still, you know, you're not moving, you're stretching in a stationary position. Dynamic stretching meaning you're, you're stretching through a range of motion, your body is moving as you do that, right? And so uh, what we've actually come to find out is that static stretching actually um, is not ideal for to do prior to exercise um because you actually tend to lose um elasticity in the muscle and overall strength and power in the muscle fiber when you go to do the exercise um when you do dynamic stretching which say for example um you're you're gonna go do some squats right And instead of just standing there stretching your hamstrings, you know, throwing them up on a table and, and stretching them, you actually <clears throat> say you do some like walking lunges or you do some side to side lunges, something like that. Um, you actually improve muscular elasticity, um, joint flexibility. And what that also does is since you're moving through a range of motion, um, you're increasing your, 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 your core body temperature a little bit um, and you're promoting blood flow. And so what that does is just kind of, um, improves range of motion overall when you go to do the exercise that you're, that you're going to do. Um, 
I was actually reading a, uh, a study that was referenced. Um, I found this through ACE and I can't remember that it's the journal that they referenced is, is actually a stretch, um, a stretch journal. They focus primarily on that. And they found that people that did static stretching prior to any exercise or whatever exercise they were doing in that study lost, um, I think it was like between five and 6% of their muscular strength and power and were able to actually move less weight during the exercise, <clears throat> having done static stretching versus dynamic. That is so, so interesting because I think I read one that it was like up to 30% less. Mm. But I don't know. I, I don't quote me on that. I think I just read that like. Yeah. Um, and and I, I don't have the thing in front of me, so I can't remember the exact numbers. But in any case, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty clear that static stretching actually. Yeah, it is significant. And it, it certainly does across the board seem to actually inhibit your performance when you go to do whatever exercise you're going to do um stick with dynamic stretching before yeah. the, again we're talking about before working out right and yes so before that, working out yeah yeah you want to move through a range of motion as you stretch to get the body warmed up um and that's going to help improve performance yeah. static stretching is actually perfectly okay to do after exercise and when you're at home you know, if your if your muscles are sore, or whatever, static stretch to help um, speed recovery and things like that. It's just not ideal for for prior to to your exercise. Yeah, and I think again on like on the topic of warming up, a good acronym for people to remember or start to memorize is RAMP, which stands for raise, activate, mobilize, and potentiate. So it's basically you know raise, raise your body temperature activate activate the muscles that you're going to be working with that day mobilize so make sure that you are warming up for that range of motion and then potentiate so making sure that you're starting to make those neuromuscular pathways kind of light up and get ready for the work that they're about to do so ramp raise activate mobilize potentiate and i think that's an acronym people should start to memorize as well as they know rice <laughs> yeah i will I, that one's, I like that. I actually didn't know that one myself. I haven't heard what? that. What? What? I knew something that Caleb didn't know? Oh <laughs> hey, my people, God. I did not, I did not go to school for exercise science. Okay, oh my so. God. Ring the bells. Ring <laughs> the bells. I'm going to relish in this moment. Can I have a moment of silence? She knows, she knows ramp. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true though. Okay, it's great. Cool. I, I, I do like that acronym. Yeah, it's, it's great. I love it. Um, okay, stretching before exercising, done. Let's talk about, should we do fasted cardio first or should we do Oh, sports? yeah. Okay, oh, fasted fast. cardio it is. So That's the fun one. Here's the myth. Fasted cardio burns more fat. Okay. Here, this is why I love this one so much. Because unlike a lot of this other stuff, like we've talked about detox and we've talked about sugars and all this other all this other stuff this one from a face value standpoint makes sense right one would assume that if you go if you wake up in the morning you don't eat and you go into the gym you and you get on a treadmill and you do an hour of cardio right well you haven't eaten in let's suppose you haven't eaten in 12 hours and so your your body you know, logically, when you think about it, isn't running off of food as a fuel source. And so what are you going to use as fuel, right? Well, whatever you have stored. And so it's, it's this idea that, well, if we don't have, 
if we're not giving our body, if we're not using food to power us through the exercise, we're just going to pull from fat stores and just use that, right? Well, there's two things to this, two very key pieces. One is that whether or not you use fat or carbohydrates as a fuel source during cardio depends solely on the type of cardio you're doing. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, it comes down to heart rate. And so when your heart rate reaches above a certain level and doesn't fall back below that, physiologically, you use carbohydrate as a fuel source. Okay. If you hear me drop the word substrate, that just means source of fuel. Um, <clears throat> so we use carbohydrates as the fuel source once your heart rate is above a certain level. Um, the exact numbers, I, I don't remember, but there is a threshold. When you stay below that threshold, so your heart rate is elevated but not too high and it maintains that. So think of this as like swimming or a light jog on a treadmill or you're doing Stairmaster or something like that where, you, where your heart rate's elevated but you can maintain that level, right? You actually will use fats as a, fuel, as a source of fuel. Fats will be the main substrate, right? Yep. And so we, let's suppose that an individual goes in, they haven't eaten in 12 hours, they hop on the treadmill, they're, they're jogging at a moderate pace where, where they're able to maintain that pace for, you know, let's say for the full time. That person is going to mobilize more fatty acid in the body and be used and to be used as fuel. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's a fact. <clears throat> However, and this is where I was going to reference the Brad Schoenfeld study. Mm-hmm. He and several of his colleagues actually did a study where they took two groups of people and they gave them all, they gave both groups the same uh, caloric intake. <clears throat> and what they did was they gave, they had them do the same um, workout routines as well, except in one group, they had their, had them do their cardio fasted. And in the other group, they had them do the cardio fed. So they'd have them do a meal like 30 minutes before going to do the cardio. <clears throat> What they found was that the group that did the, the cardio fasted did mobilize more fat for fuel through the cardio than the, the, the fed group, right? Mm-hmm. The fed group tend to use far more glucose or stored carbohydrates as their fuel source. However, what, what the biggest piece that needs to be considered is that there's 23 other hours in the day. What we use as a source of fuel during those other 23 hours when not in the gym, right, mm-hmm. is actually the opposite of what we use during the exercise. So in group A, the, the fasted group, they did mobilize more fat during the cardio, but throughout the rest of the day for the remaining other 23 hours of the day, um, or I think they actually looked at it as 24 hours after the exercise, that group actually mobilized far less fatty acids as a car, as a fuel source at rest when they were not in the gym. The group that used carbohydrates to get them to the workout mobilized far more fatty acid and actually used more fat and burned more fat over the remaining 24 hours after they left the exercise. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
So yeah, I think I did read that study. And I think it's important to make a note here that just because you are oxidizing more fat at the time of exercise does not necessarily mean you are burning fat. Yes, that is. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Um, using fats as fuel does not is not the same thing as losing body fat. Yeah. Big difference. Big significant difference. Yes, that is huge. But this also relates back to why weight training is ultimately better for fat loss than cardio in general. Because when you're doing your weight training, it is anaerobic exercise, meaning we can only, if you're, if you're lifting weights, regardless of whether it's, you know, lightweight, heavyweight, doesn't matter. It's anaerobic exercise. And so we burn through carbohydrates stored in the muscle to get us through that always later for the remaining 23 hours of that day we are going to be far more efficient at mobilizing and using stored fatty acid as our source of fuel when we're at rest that's another piece as to why weight training is better for fat loss overall but we see that when we use carbohydrates during the exercise we move more fat throughout the rest of the day exactly so over the course of 24 hours in that particular study, they found that there was no difference in overall. Actually, so this, this study lasted four weeks. After four weeks, they found that there was no difference in weight loss between the two groups. Mm -hmm. They both lost weight. Both groups did lose weight and weight from body fat. That they did. But there was no difference. And so to say that fasted cardio is better is false. Now there's nothing wrong with doing fasted cardio. It's not going to hinder you or hurt you in any way. You can still lose body weight and still actually lose body fat. I think it just comes down to personal preference. Yeah. If you, I mean, some people, if they have to get their workout in at six o'clock in the morning and they wake up at five, you know, a lot of people like myself, I don't like to wake up and eat. I want to, you know, my, I just don't have an appetite at that time. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. They want to be up for a little while before they eat. And so if you want to go into the gym bright and early, get your workout done with no food, that's fine. It's totally okay to do that um, so long as you're refueling properly afterwards. But don't expect to have expedited results because of doing that. It's just not how it works. It's okay if it's what you prefer, but it is not superior. Right. Perfect. And then on that, so on that kind of going off on the next myth, um, people chasing soreness to make sure that they get a good workout. Right. Um, yeah. So soreness, it, it makes sense why people associate soreness with a great workout. Right. Um, but it's important to understand that soreness oftentimes is not a result of you pushing yourself harder than you ever have, right? I mean, in certain cases, that is, that is true. If you push yourself more than you're used to, you might be more sore. But oftentimes you're sore too, mostly from um, one, doing a new exercise and putting your body through a range of motion that it's not used to. And also stretching muscles in a way that, that they're not used to be stretched primarily on the eccentric portion of a lot of exercises. Yes. Um, eccentric portions are 
are huge. And for those of you that don't know what that means, assume you're doing a bicep curl, right? You curl the weight up to your body. And as you bring it back down, that's the, the, that's the eccentric part of the movement is when the weight's coming back down. Um, oftentimes, let's suppose that one day, and I will just use bicep curls as the example, right? One day you do bicep curls, you do three sets of 12, right? And your pace is one second up, one second down. And you're not sore the next day. The next week you go in, you do the same thing, you use the same weight that you used before, and you still do three sets of 12. But this time you curl the weight up and instead of just letting it come down for a second, you count to five as you come down, right? And you really focus on holding the weight through that eccentric motion. There's a good chance you're actually gonna be far more sore, your, your biceps are gonna be more sore after that workout than they were the previous week. You did the same amount of weight and you did the same amount of total reps, but you held the muscle under tension for a longer period of time because you focused more on that eccentric movement. Yeah. And that's a great, that's a great point to make as far as progressive overload. So if you're keeping the same weight, but changing up your time under tension, that's a great way to put your muscles under new types of stress without having to adjust the volume per se. Absolutely. Yep. And uh, so we, we agree that soreness is not a good indicator of a or it's not an indicator at all of a good workout per se, I do think it is a good indicator of recovery. So if you're still doing the same weight and the same amount of reps with nothing changed and you're still just as sore every single time you work out and repeat that workout, then I feel like something is off on your recovery. Either you're not consuming enough protein or you're not you're not recovering as well after your workout. I think it's a good indicator of, of lack of recovery or that you need to concentrate more on recovery or take, you know, some time off. True. That's true. Um, and another thing too, with, with soreness, um, and I've actually found this with clients is that, um, if you're not used to stretching and I'm talking about static stretching, right? Like we, like we mentioned before, um, if you're not used to, to static stretching, I have actually found that I've had clients that are sore simply from just doing that. Yes. And so again, and, and, and we can hardly say that static stretching is a workout, right? So oftentimes it's, it's literally as simple as a stretch that you're, you're stretching the muscle in a way that it's not used to being stretched. That alone can, can induce soreness. So soreness, it's not, it doesn't always mean you got a great workout. <clears throat> Likewise, if you can get an excellent workout and not be sore. So it, it, it isn't something people should chase. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Cool. Moving on to the next one. Ab exercises give you abs. True or false? Um, <laughs> so when you say give you abs, I will assume <laughs> that what, what this means is you can see them, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that, false. Um, so like any muscle, the abdominals are, you know, first of all, the abdominals are one singular muscle and so the concept of like you'll hear people say i want to work my lower abs i want to work my upper abs it doesn't actually quite work that way um the muscle in, a, in and of itself actually contracts as as one entire muscle just like any other does so you don't actually target one specific area but um if you do abs exercises whether it be some form of a crunch or a sit-up or planks or you name it, right? Leg raises. 
it like anything else, it will help to induce strength and hypertrophy in that muscle, right? So you can actually, I'll use the word develop your abdominals by doing abdominal exercises. Hmm. Um, it's also extremely important to do them for core stability. I think stability is one of the biggest missing pieces of most people's um, uh, workout routine program. Um, and just the way they function in general, core stability is, is huge and it's often missing in a lot of people. Um, so you can develop a lot of core stability through doing ab exercises, strength and development. I mean, you can develop your abs through doing the exercise, but when I say develop, that just means making the muscle grow and develop. It does not mean that you're going to see them any better than you do now. Mm-hmm. Visibly seeing them comes down to how much body fat covers them. And as we've talked about, the body fat covering them depends solely upon your, your calories and your diet, right? Yes. And I think that's a good point to make that a lot of people will say you have to eat clean in order to reveal your abs, which is not necessarily true. Even if you eat really clean, if you're still in a caloric surplus, you're not losing any body fat. And the reason you can't see those abdominal muscles, it's the same thing as toning, which we'll talk about in a second, is that you can't see those muscles because there's a layer of fat covering them and eating clean won't do a thing. Correct. Absolutely. You, as you said, you said it well. I mean, you can eat, you, you, you could eat chicken breast and broccoli every day for the rest of your life, but if you're eating too many calories from chicken breast and broccoli, you're still not going to lose the body fat to see your abs. Yep. Yep, 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 yep. Cool. But yes, I think it's important to note that it is important to have core stability. Your core acts as a force counteractor. So it's really important for balance and like you said, stability. So it is important to still have ab exercises or making sure that you're engaging your core on your other compound movements like squats, deadlifts. It is important to make sure that they are getting work, but it's not the key to getting visible abs. No doubt. Absolutely. Sweet. Um, okay. Next one, (laughs) you lose muscle immediately when you stop working out. So a common thing I get from either clients or just like people in general is like, Oh, I, I went on vacation for a week. Like I've, I've gained 10 pounds and like, I've lost so much muscle. Um, so this one is, is a little bit hazy because it's extremely individualized. Um, I will say the phrase, if you don't use it, you lose it is is true in the long run uh, when, as it relates to muscle mass. Um, I mean, that's a fact. You, you will lose some muscle if you're not inducing um, hypertrophy or recovery on a constant basis. But that can be um, – what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of like halted or slowed down or prevented, I guess was a better word. Prevented Mm -hmm. was probably the word I was looking for. Somewhat prevented by keeping your calories and your protein, specifically protein, high enough to, for, for, for maintenance. But that, again, it also kind of comes back to the person. Um, There's actually a lot of research demonstrating that people who are more physically active primarily those who actually lift more weights in their younger years, like their teenage years, have 
a higher chance of retaining their lean body mass in adulthood, even if they don't work out. Mm-hmm. Now, again, kind of, and it, each, even if you take 10 people that, you know, fit that, that profile, each of them may be a little bit different in terms of how much they may lose or, or retain or whatever. But I think one, a really important thing to, to understand though, is that let's suppose you go on vacation, you're out, you're out of the gym, maybe you get hurt or something, right? And you're, you don't go to the gym for a couple months. Even if you, you, you likely will lose some, some muscle mass in that scenario, but the rate at which you gain it back is much quicker than what it took you to gain it in the beginning. Yes. So, and we see that a lot in athletes because um, athletes are always getting hurt, but they're able to bounce back fairly quickly after recovery of, of whatever injury they had um, from like a lean body mass standpoint. They tend to come back pretty quick relative to how long it took them in the beginning to even get where they were. So yeah. that one's, that's a tough one. Um, because it does really vary from person to person. Yes. And I think a lot of people probably misinterpret muscle for strength. So if they take some time off of the gym and come back and everything feels a lot heavier, it's probably just because they're not used to lifting that weight again. Um, but it's completely different than muscle deterioration. You can't, you know, just like you can't put on fat in a week, you can't put on, you know, tons of pounds of fat in a week from vacation, just like you can't lose a ton of muscle in a week from vacation. Um, and there's actually been some studies done. I don't know if you listen to the stronger by science podcast. It's rather new, but it's really good. Um, the episodes are a bit long, but it's really interesting. They were talking about how there have been some studies done on like Olympic and power lifters who take months off from the gym, like six months at a time sometimes. And they come back being able to lift the same, if not more weight from taking that time off. So, you know, just because people take, you know, a couple of weeks off of the gym, it's not going to make or break your progress. Yeah. And I, I, I'm not familiar with that podcast, but I, I mean, I believe that because um, oftentimes a lot of what we can move like in terms of weight is neural is uh sorry not neurological psychological too yes. so there's a lot that goes into it from from a, a mind standpoint um like there was actually an interesting study um jeff nippard referenced this in one of his videos um where and I can't, I don't know the exact details, but what they did was they found that, and it was, this was a squat max study. So they were just took a group of people and they wanted to test their squat max, right? So they took them, essentially what they did was one session that they did. They just simply worked their way up until they, they couldn't squat for one rep anymore, right? Mm-hmm. And then they recorded whatever those weights were. The following session that they did that, they incrementally worked their way up the same way. But what they did before they hit their max was they actually went way above what the max was prior. And I'm talking like maybe a hundred pounds heavier, something they knew they weren't going to be able to squat. Mm-hmm. And they simply had them pick the weight up, right? Mm-hmm. They, had, they had them pick it up, hold it and set it back down. After doing that, 
every person in the study or almost every person in the study was actually able to move. They actually maxed heavier than they did the prior week because psychologically their brain, and this, I think that it's like, it's uh, it has something to do with the central nervous system, stimulating, stimulating that their brain was, had already associated that extremely heavy weight with, you know, the being like the maximum amount of weight they were going to pick up that day. So then when they went down for their new max, it felt lighter. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. There's a, I think maybe you were telling me about another study or maybe this was someone else of someone that owned a gym and they covered up all of the weights with yes. tape Yep. and everyone, yeah. everyone performed like way heavier <laughs> than yep. they had prior just because they weren't thinking about it and they didn't have those mental barriers. Yeah. So this guy covered up the essentially spray painted over the numbers on every weight in his gym. Oh, that's um, so fascinating. Yeah. And he had, he had people come in and lift weights essentially. And he would ask them, well, what's, what's the most weight you've lifted on this exercise for like a shoulder press, for example. And they'd tell him and he'd say, okay, go grab, go grab weights, you know, just go grab some and start doing the exercise. And when you feel like you can't go heavier, you stop. But if you feel like you can go heavier, I want you to go up another time, uh, another set. And collectively, I'd have to re go back and reread this. I'm pretty damn sure that every person, and it wasn't a large group of people, but every person that, he, that, that came and did this, when asked, how much do you think you did, they underestimated it. Mm -hmm. And they actually lifted more than they realized they did. And that's because your brain, when you associate, when, the, when you look at the numbers on a weight, your brain automatically tells you, tells your body, well, oh, I can do that or no, I can't. And phys physically, you may be able to do that, but because the brain is telling the body it can't, you're not going to. Yeah. So there's, there's such a huge psychological aspect to overall strength and which, 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 bleeds into uh, the original question of you know retaining lean body mass so that's probably the haziest one that we've talked about so far yeah um it's it there's just a lot that goes into it but i will stick by the by the 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 old adage that if you don't use it you lose it um yeah. it is true you you can and often will lose a, at least a little bit if you're not using it mm-hmm Cool, cool, cool. Okay, last one. Um, squats are the best exercise for growing your glutes. You know, um, I'm not gonna sit. I'm not gonna actually. This is gonna be my opinion because mm. I, I actually don't know, um, like with certainty whether it is or not. I will say, squats, no doubt stimulate glute activation and therefore growth that's a fact we know that right. yes whether or not it's the best i don't know i my argument would be no because i think that there are exercises and we're talking about glutes specifically right or are we, are glutes we talking about legs and glutes? glutes specifically glutes. okay well, uh, um there's a lot of females listening right oh yeah <laughs> that's why we're <laughs> talking about it <laughs> yep um I'm going to say no, because I believe that now I think you should squat, but there are, there are exercises that can 
be used that better target the glutes individually. Um, hip thrusts probably being the main one that yes. I can think of. Uh, hip thrusts are going to activate every fiber of the glutes through the entire range of motion. Um, another one would be different variations of kickbacks are great. Yeah. Um, and I this, feel like you, you know, could also, that kind of grazes into like reverse hypers as well. Yep. I agree. I mean, really anything it's because the glutes are no different than any other muscle, right? If I want my, my biceps to grow, I'm probably going to do just shit loads of, cur of curls, right? Mm -hmm. Because I want to burn and, and, and I, I want to just target that particular group of muscles, right? Um, if I'm doing heavy rows, for example, my biceps are a secondary muscle in that exercise. I may get over a long period of time, a small amount of bicep growth from doing heavy rows. But since my back is the primary mover, my biceps may not see as much overall growth as they could if I was just doing curls, which target that muscle alone. And so I think squats kind of fall into that where, yes, you're using your glutes, but it's secondary. Um, yes. yes, I agree with that. To the quads and the hamstrings, which is probably which are the primary movers in that exercise. Actually, so, I think hamstrings are not as engaged as everyone thinks on squats. Um, that maybe I. That's another one I'm not entirely certain of. I think I was um, reading a study. Um, do you do you know Menno Henselman's? No. Okay, he's great. He's got awesome articles. Um, I'll send you his his website. But he, I think I read a study that was like hamstring muscle activation with squats could be as low as like twenty percent, okay. like compared to to other other muscle groups that activate. And so, like quads, I think accounts for like more than fifty percent of activation okay. in a squat but but don't quote me I'll, I'll send it to you but i think uh i was actually interested in that because i thought i thought primarily you know it was squats hamstr or glutes hamstrings quads for squats but i guess it's yeah. primarily quads and i would i the one thing i'd be curious to know about that particular study is how they position them to the squat because changing the width of your stance and even your foot positioning can actually drastically change um, what muscles being activated. So I think with a squat, for example, changing your position can, can probably alter what muscle group is, is the primary mover. Mm -hmm. um, so hopefully they reference that. But yes, if, yes. If, and I think yeah. I can't, maybe it was a meta analysis, but I think it also said something about bar positioning too. So like a lot of people will say like front or high bar squats activate the quads more so than like a low bar squat. And what the study found was that there wasn't a difference. I was going to say bar that, with bar placement. Okay. I'm going to, I was going to say that sounds like it's grasping at straws on, on bar placement, but <laughs> mm -hmm. I think foot positioning and, and uh, stance width, it would be huge. Yes, um, I would agree with that. Yeah, so, uh, but, but as far as the glutes are concerned, I think hip thrusts, in my opinion, are probably the ultimate uh, glute building exercise that you can really do. Yeah. Um, second, or, uh, and then second to that would be variations of kickbacks. Um, it, it, glutes are, it, they're, I think people walk into the gym and they think that like, well, I need to constantly be mixing it up and like doing new things. 
certain there are certain uh, body parts that there's just not a ton of exercises you're going to be able to do to stimulate them. Another one is uh, abductors that I forgot to mention. Hmm. Um, yeah, like hip, like hip abductions. Yep, hip abductions are going to be big. Um, but outside of hip abductions, kickbacks, and uh, hip thrusts, I mean, when you when you get out of that, you start doing circus tricks. Really, you know, unless. Um, I feel like lunges. Lunges will, um, but I also believe that. I think they're definitely secondary in that sense. I think the the quads and hamstrings are, are definitely the primaries on, on the lunges. Yeah, I will I say how far your knee goes as well. Like depending on what your lunge looks like too will activate sure. either quads or glutes. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so for the listeners, you know, takeaway points here are that, you know, um, you can alter an exercise very slightly in terms of your, your form and, or, or your positioning, but, that slight change can make the biggest difference in which muscle you're, you're activating and targeting. Right. And so, um, that's why if you're working with a trainer and they say, Hey, do this with your foot. And you're like, Holy shit. I didn't know that muscle was there. That's, you know, that's, that's where (laughs) the help of someone who knows those things comes in because you may never, I mean, there's exercises that I do today and I've been lifting for a long time that I've done the exercise a thousand times. And then one day, randomly, I'll make a small tweak in my positioning. You know, my, I turn my arm a certain way. And all of a sudden, I feel the muscle I'm trying to target activated far more. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's huge. Like, the, the tweaks like that are huge. But hip thrusts, kickbacks, abductors, those are the big three, in my opinion. You might know of some other ones that I'm not aware of. But as far as I'm concerned, those are like, the, the the really main ones i mean most of the uh I'll, i guess i'll say instagram models or or whatever fitness models that um have you know post regularly and have like shown a tremendous amount of like glute progress over the years i mean i i can think of a couple off the top of my head that actually do hip thrusts like four to five times a week mm-hmm. and that's the huge one yeah yeah, and I think probably like again with the kickbacks and reverse hypers, which are pretty similar movements, I would say those probably yeah. sit in the same realm. But yeah, I would totally agree with you. Hip thrusts, either kickbacks or reverse hyper extensions, and then um, what did we say for the last one? Uh, abduction. Oh, abductions. Yeah, what the drawn a blank. Yeah, yeah, I think those would be it too. Well, cool. I think that's a pretty good. There are so many others. Like, all I'm already like thinking of things to start a new list. <laughs> yes. So this was great. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. That concludes part two. Um, thank you so much for for coming on, and I'm excited to for our future spill the tea on fitness myths. <laughs> Absolutely. This was awesome. I can talk about these things all day, as you know. So oh, same. Um, I, know. I just like, it's, I totally geek out <laughs> guys. I think if, uh, you know, let Tori know what, uh, what you guys want next. Um, whether it be diet related specifically or fitness specifically related, you know, whatever it is. Um, just, I think, and maybe Tori has a method for how she's going to kind of get your guys's opinion on what you'd like to hear comments Um, leave reviews leave reviews um yeah so whatever you guys have i'm i'm willing to tackle
Cool, cool, cool. And I will make sure that your social media and everything is linked in the show notes. And other than that, we are good. Thank you so much. Thank you. Mm-hmm.